0: Listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich at Civil War Talk Radio. Civil War Talk Radio has hosted some of the giants of Civil War scholarship. Every listener has heard of James McPherson, William C. Davis, Gary Gallagher, and so on. Our guest today is someone you may not have heard of yet, but odds are that you will. He is Aaron Sheehan-Dean, history professor at the University of North Florida, the editor of Struggle for a Vast Future, the American Civil War, published by Osprey. Join us for a talk with Aaron Sheehan-Dean on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: without having to learn HTML or other complicated
1: programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a
2: multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R dot com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world
0: to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this week at the beginning of June 2007 from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, overlooking the spacious and completely excavated parking lot where massive construction continues throughout the summer as we prepare for the return of the students and the workers hunt down the elusive leak in the steam pipes that has troubled this campus since the dawn of time. As always, thank you to everyone who has contributed to Civil War Talk Radio, and especially thank you this week to all those who have stuck with the program through our recent website change. I've received a lot of email about it, a lot of feedback, very helpful. Currently, opinion is running approximately 100% to 0% against the change, pointing out that it lacks the ease of use and attractiveness and functionality and appearance and everything else of the old site. And I can't say I disagree. I think it's, uh, I, I can't find anything good in it. It does have a more prominent picture of me than the old site did. Mm-hmm. But even loyal listener number one, my mother, uh, who normally would, would go for the picture of me first, uh, agrees that the new site is difficult to use, and uh, I, I spent a pleasant 10 or 15 minutes on the phone with her recently, uh, talking through how to work the new site, learning how to work it myself at the time. Uh, but there's nothing we can do about that, and I'm happy to report morale at Civil War. Talk Radio World Headquarters has rebounded since last week. Uh, the change is here. Nothing we can do about it, so we'll just move forward. There is a uh, uh, a button on the site, once you're actually listening to it, in the upper right-hand corner where you can apparently download a uh... some kind of icon to the desktop so you don't have to hunt for the site uh, for the show each week going through the schedule and there is an individual id number for the show so that also makes the page a little easier to to store for some people i understand some are not able to do that still and finally to answer some inquiries those who are still interested in uh... donating to the book fund and getting a copy of all for the regiment uh, you're welcome certainly to continue doing so. The PayPal account to which to send your thousands of dollars is Civil War TR, all one word, at AOL.com. It's not tax deductible. It's a scam for me, basically, but I use it to buy the books that we talk about on the show, uh, with some exceptions, like today's book, which I got a free copy of, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, our guest, Today is Aaron Sheehan Dean from University of North Florida and editor and author of some interesting new works. Aaron are you there
2: I am can you hear me?
0: I can hear you fine okay. uh, glad you could join me today. yeah,
2: thanks for having me
0: uh, well let's uh let me start as I start with almost everyone on the show and uh, tell us how you got interested in the, the Civil War subject
2: uh, I got interested um after I left college. I was working in washington d c on Capitol Hill, and reading a lot of U.S. history, and sort of wandering around the Capitol and occasionally giving tours. Um, And it was living in Washington that I sort of became fascinated with the Civil War, because so much of that city is built out of the Civil War, so many of the major plazas, and it seems to me at least three quarters of all the statues are of Civil War generals or admirals. and, um, And that sort of piqued my interest, and so I started reading more and more and realized that it was a remarkable topic for talking about almost all of pressing uh, problems and interesting questions. And so um, I became interested in teaching as well as a way to try improve things in the world. And, uh, and the Civil War was a great hook for doing that with students, I found.
0: It, it certainly is that. You, when you were on Capitol Hill, you were in uh, Senator Levin's
2: office? Yeah, Carl Levin from Michigan. That's uh,
0: uh, Are you from Michigan by any chance?
2: I am. I grew up in uh, outside Lansing.
0: Ah, I, I grew up in Highland Park. Oh, okay. Uh, in the interior of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Which, if if we were in having this conversation in person, our listeners, of course, would not know this, but we would <laughs> both be extending our right hands, palm up, and pointing at different spots on our hands to indicate where we were from.
2: Absolutely, my. That's all
0: Michigan natives do when to show I'm from. The thumb. I'm from. Uh, that space uh, above the, the pinky finger of Carl Travers Bay, and, and so on.
2: My my five-year-old daughter just figured this out yesterday. We have a, a cottage in Mackinac, which is all the way at the top, and she referred to her middle finger as her Mackinac finger.
0: Very good.
2: And I said, what do you mean? And she said, that's where you always show me it is.
0: That's right. You just put <laughs> out the hand. and It took a while when I moved out of Michigan to realize you don't hold out your hand and treat it as a map for any other state.
2: Nope.
0: And even the Upper Peninsula, you can sort of do it with the you, left you, hand held horizontally, <laughs> you can but indeed. it's not the same thing. So, um any particular interest in Michigan's role in the war? or
2: um, You know, I haven't spent a lot of time on it, and, and I actually plan to. I had some ancestors that were in the Michigan 7th Cavalry, um, and then a, another ancestor who was actually in the Michigan State Senate at the outbreak of the war. He was a big Lincoln supporter um, and managed to get himself appointed Marshal of the Western District of Michigan. Um, and my family, my dad's side, luckily hung on to the... Um, the commission that he received from Lincoln, signed by Lincoln and Seward. And we had that in my house all the time growing up, and I hadn't paid that much attention to it until I sort of figured out the context and realized that he was one of the innumerable hacks that had come bothering Lincoln for an appointment and, you know, besieged him somewhere and, but managed to get the appointment. And I sort of want to find the backstory on that someday.
0: Wow. Does your family still have the, the
2: Lincoln document? Find we document. do. We do. Um, with a full signature from him, not the A. Lincoln, but Abraham Lincoln.
0: was unusual.
2: Yeah, now yeah, that's what I learned, um, and uh, um, and Seward as well on it. So it's a it's a neat document.
0: Absolutely, good thing to keep. Well, I noticed again looking at some of the things you've worked on, your interest uh, historically does seem to focus more on Virginia uh, and Virginia soldiers. What what brought that about?
2: Well. Um, I uh, I I went to the University of Virginia to do my graduate work, um, and mostly because of just how strong the program was generally in the 19th century. And it was while I was there, and I started reading, you know, the sort of standard works on the Civil War. And I, I mean, partly because UVA has got such a strong program in Southern history, I was reading more of that in general. But I thought that the questions that Southerners faced were in many ways more interesting to me at the time. and uh, I have to admit a bit of selfishness as far as choosing Virginia. Um, my son had been born just about the time I started doing my, my dissertation work, and I sort of partly picked that as a topic because I know I wouldn't be gone for months at a time on research trips. I would drive to Richmond and drive to different archives around the state, but I could do most of those in sort of day trips as opposed to, you know, the, the typical graduate student hall, which is months on the, months at a time on the road. And I didn't want to do that when he was young. Um, but, the, but the Virginia, I mean, the, the better answer is that Virginia presents the opportunity to try to figure out questions about loyalty um, and nationalism uh, and defense of home that all funnel together because so many of the soldiers from Virginia fought in that state, um, though not always exactly where their families were. So you can pose similar questions that you would about soldiers from Texas or Louisiana fighting in Virginia um, but with a little bit more poignancy because they're just over the mountains from where their, their families are.
0: Well, this is a question that comes up all the time. And I, I've been in Civil War studies, I, it comes up with my students when I talk about uh, motivations of the soldiers. And for for students here in North Carolina, certainly, it's uh, sometimes hard to get beyond the simple feeling that, well, the Northern armies are in Virginia, so we have to defend ourselves. Um and it's just a, it's as simple as that. Uh, was it as simple as that?
2: Um, I think it was simple initially. Um, you know, most people, and this is one of the things that's so difficult to do with students and anyone, because we know the Civil War lasted four years and involved such catastrophic slaughter, uh, that we tend to think that people who fought it knew that, too. And, of course, they didn't. Most people who enlisted imagined that it would last a couple of weeks, perhaps the summer, Um, and I mean, not to speak too lightly of it, but it was an opportunity for some camping and some fun with the guys and you might pick up a paycheck. Um, but surely if you were a Southerner, you didn't imagine the Yankees could last more than a couple of months. And if you were a Northerner, you didn't imagine the Southerners could last that long. And so I think there is a rush of enthusiasm. There's certainly a great deal of social pressure on young men to join immediately after, um, Sumter, and in particular after Lincoln calls up the, the troops uh, to suppress what he calls the, the insurrection and I think um, that things change over the course of the war and that's one of the elements that we haven't had as clear a fix on in, in soldier studies is trying to see that motivation and questions about loyalty are dynamic that they change over the course of the war um, and that's something that I've tried to focus on in my my own work
0: Do you see a lot of Ideological motivation, this is certainly what what James McPherson has has staked out as uh, one of the prime reasons, if not the prime reason, for for soldiers fighting on both sides.
2: Yeah, I I don't see um, ideological motivation as quite so central as, as Dr. McPherson does. I think... Um, Again, initially, there are a lot of people that frame the conflict in those terms, and there's a lot of discussion in June and July and August of 1861 about rights. Um, And uh, it sort of followed from a support of secession in principle that you would then defend that um, right. But I think as the war progressed, And certainly for Confederates who face the challenges of an enormously centralized state in their own borders, to say nothing of what they, you know, much more centralized than what they had faced before the war from the United States, um, that there are domestic concerns, there are social interests, there's economic interest that plays a greater role um, than ideology per se. I think that uh, Confederate nationalism... um, winds up being broad enough to draw strength from a whole variety of things. And, um, I mean, my root explanation is that is that those Virginians who stay in the armies, and the vast majority of them do stay in the armies, uh, do so because the the world that they know and that they're defending is threatened with collapse, and that's a world predicated on slavery, but it's a world that encompasses much more. Um, so it's not narrowly ideological, though I think ideology is important and the way in which men think about their rights is crucial for explaining why they leave so suddenly and invest so many years in, in the fight.
0: What? How um, does this tie in with, with Peter Carmichael's argument about uh, a generational split among Virginians, that, that the younger, younger uh, sons were more... Uh, more avid secessionists than than their their elders.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Peter's book is is terrific. I think, and it it allows us to look at a whole range of issues. With that that generational angle, allows you to approach economics and politics and religion um, in ways that people who just take one of those miss. Um, he's looking primarily at the the men who became the the sort of captains and the young leadership of the Confederacy, and he convinces me that those people are. Um, earnest and diehard confederates, um, I mean, my own work, and I've done some demographic, some work sampling Virginia soldiers, is that, in fact, the, the men who volunteered, a majority of them are heads of households, so it's not, the standard stereotype is that these are all second sons, um, or maybe first sons, that they're primarily 18, 19 years old. In fact, the average age is closer to 24 among the sample that I took in Virginia.
0: Does um, that include soldiers of all ranks? Yeah, enlisted men really? Yeah, it's,
2: it's yeah, it's. I mean, the 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 sample that I drew, which was a thousand men, um, I mean, it was a represent statistically representative sample, is is almost entirely enlisted men.
0: That's that is surprising.
2: Yeah, and um, and the majority of them, um, I can't remember the statistic now exactly, but it's it's close to sixty percent are heads of household. Um, so that we need to really think about these people giving up quite a bit to be in the armies. It's not uh, not that you wouldn't have as a second son. I mean, you're still risking your life, but it is um, something different still to ask a father, um, a husband, and probably a father to leave as well, um, which says that 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 dedication to this idea runs very deep and draws on um, the way in which men think about their families in particular, I think.
0: Hmm. I find that very interesting. So there really is, I mean, these are stakeholders. These are people with something... To lose other than, as you say, their own lives, um, but
2: I mean, and, and I think I think what's key for thinking about Virginia and places like Tennessee has a very similar experience is that as the war goes on, um, the threat to that life becomes much worse. Uh, so that at the beginning, it it was the threat was pretty far removed. Yes, an army was supposedly marching through Virginia, um, and Lincoln had been demonized as an abolitionist. But by 1863, in fact, the Union Army is emancipating slaves, and it is occupying southern towns, and it is adopting a very, very hard war strategy. And so there's a lot more reason to fight in 63, I think, than there was necessarily in 61, or the stakes are a lot clearer in any event. And that's that sort of change that um, it's been hard to see, but... As we're getting more studies of soldiers over time, I think we're we're getting a better sense of that um, that change over time.
0: Um, this is uh, let me keep pushing on different uh, dimensions of this. What about regions within Virginia? Do you see the, the Tidewater, the, the Chesapeake area, more? Fervent than. Uh, fervent yeah. Well, here's what I mean.
2: Here's how I I split up Virginia, um, and I've actually done a fair amount of uh, geographic work. I uh, mean, I've built a. I use geographic information system software, GIS, um, to sort of map things like enlistment data, um, and wealth, and and other issues. And what emerges in Virginia is what I would call a Confederate triangle, which begins at about Winchester and then runs, sort of cuts across almost Alexandria. Um, and then running west runs basically splits West Virginia in half, so that everything um, from the you know north of the New River, Greenbrier, Greenbrier County, all of that, and south is is pretty staunchly Confederate. Um, and so that everything within that triangle, running south to south to North Carolina, is pretty staunchly Confederate. It's only those. Um, if you look, for instance, at enlistment rates within Virginia, there's 149 counties in 1860. There are only 11 that don't raise any troops at all that have no formally organized regiments on behalf of the Confederacy, and all 11 of those are counties that border the North, so that there are counties along the Ohio River, um, or counties up, you know, in, in the Panhandle of West, what's today West Virginia, towards into Pennsylvania, so that it required um, uh, a real proximity to the Union to, to uh, sort of detach Virginians. From the Confederacy, and even in parts of West Virginia uh, that are pretty far to the north, you find rates of you know thirty percent of the men enlist for the Confederate Army. Um, as you go down further, I mean Charleston and the Kanawha Valley of West Virginia, you get enlistment rates of fifty or sixty percent of eligible men. Um, so um, the outlier is that upper tier of the northwestern part of of, of the Old Dominion, the, the northern part of what's today West Virginia. Um, the southwestern uh, corner is very, very eager, um, I think eager partly because they see the opportunities for the development of a slave-based economy that the Tidewater had 100 years earlier. The, the western part of the state is just really developing in the 1830s and 40s, and um, where the, the northern part north of what's uh, today West Virginia has sort of identified itself with a economy based in Pittsburgh, the Southern corner of the southwestern part of Virginia is drawn into Tennessee um, and down into to north carolina and so as a result they're firmly attached to the, the preservation of a, this the southern uh, you know economic strategy there
0: well i mean that makes sense uh, certainly in terms of connections geographically is um, let me try one more dimension yeah. uh, which is the the class dimension. Um, uh, is support stronger among those who, who already are part of the slave economy, who already have succeeded to some degree?
2: Um, it is. Let me make... Actually, I realized I'm looking at a map on my wall, and I wanted to make one more comment about the geography, because I actually have sure. a whole essay that I wrote on this, which is because pre-war Virginia was driven by pretty severe regional disputes. Westerners and Easterners uh, didn't get along very well. And this is true, of course, of, you know, for most of the southern states that have a low country, ruled by a kind of plantation aristocracy, and then an up country that is... Lower race of slaveholding and yeomen, um, and it's very difficult for Virginia to bring itself together during the war. It's one of the unlikely things that the Union was able to accomplish was to actually help help blur that pre-war um, antipathy between easterners and westerners, and it takes nearly the whole war for that to happen, but it eventually does. Um, but the question about class is really the question. I mean, Aaron, that's let me interrupt
0: question. you if I can here. Yeah, let, let's hold off on that question for a minute. Okay. The music swells in the background, so we're going to take a short break. Okay. And we'll come back in just a moment with yep. Aaron Sheehan-Dean on Civil War Talk Radio. Jackson asked Jedediah Hotchkiss, but that was only because he didn't think to ask for a GIS. What is a GIS, and why do Civil Civil War historians need to know? We'll ask our guest, Aaron Sheehan-Dean, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business, smallbusinesssuccess.com. World
0: Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Aaron Sheehan-Dean, editor of Struggle for a Vast Future, the American Civil War. And in our first segment, we were discussing uh, some of Aaron's work on the the, uh, demographics of the support of the Confederacy in Virginia, some of the interesting uh, things you can find out when you look at who supported the the, uh, Confederacy, who enlisted in the Confederate armies in particular, uh, analyzed by class, by region, by age, by uh, various uh, dimensions. When we left off, we were just discussing the, the class element did Did the uh, people higher up on the socioeconomic scale support the war everyone 's heard the old saying uh, uh, a rich man 's war but a poor man 's fight Was that the case in the Civil war or at least in Virginia uh, Aaron, what about that
2: um, no it 's not a very it 's not a very accurate way of characterizing virginia 's experience um, partly because the rich fight in numbers disproportionate to, to their their percentage of the population as a whole. Um, you can look at this either by county um, or by individual, but but certainly the wealthiest counties send the most people by far. The correlation is very high, um, and the correlation with slaveholding is, of course, very high. Those those places that had a lot to lose understood that, and and accordingly they sent 70, 80 percent of their eligible men. And we're talking in in the Confederacy about men aged 15 to 50 to fight. Um, in their units, and so um it doesn 't seem to me it seems to me that it 's important to recognize that it 's a rich man 's fight as well um, I also think that that the, that the 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 slogan need the other side of the adage needs to be reversed, which is that it was also a poor man 's war um or at least it was a uh sort of working poor man 's war. most of the the sort of middle and and working class and class identifications i think are very problematic for the antebellum south but Um, A lot of people in Virginia had an interest in the slave economy, not simply those who were slaveholders. And one of the problems that that we've made as historians is by framing um, a discussion of economic interest in the war solely in terms of whether or not people owned slaves. Um, Virginia was very prosperous, um, and that prosperity had a lot to do with the success of slave-based agriculture. And you didn't have to be a slave owner to partake in that. You could live in that society and participate in the economy and understand that it was um, a slave economy and do very well. Um, And you can see this. I worked for for some time in graduate school on the Valley of the Shadow project, and you can see this illustrated very clearly in the comparison that that project makes. It's a digital um, website that some of your listeners may be familiar with that compares a northern and a southern county the southern county is Augusta County in Virginia, and the northern county is Franklin County in Pennsylvania. And these are two places that look stereotypically northern and southern. And Franklin is more urbanized and a much denser population um, with a lot more people in a smaller space, and Augusta is more spread out. Um, and it's got 25% slaveholding, which is about the southern average, but the southern county is much much wealthier. And every income quintile, how we typically split income today into five brackets, all of those are significantly higher in the South than they are in the North, partly because this economy was so successful. Um, Do and those so
0: that, quintiles include the enslaved workers?
2: Uh, no. No, I'm talking about white population. Okay. Um, and uh, so, the, the, uh, so they have a real interest in seeing that economy continue. You know, if you're growing corn on a hundred acres of land with your family um, in augusta county you can sell that corn immediately to the slaveholders in the county who use the corn to feed their slaves um, and those same slaveholders run forty different distilleries spread out around the county to process the leftover grain into alcohol and so you don't worry about market fluctuations in Europe and whether grain is being um, you know, undersold in Latin America as wheat farmers in the north did. You have an immediate market, a very dynamic regional economy, um, that, that provides you with, with pretty good financial security.
0: So I asked that question because it sounded like the, the implication in the statistics was that the slave economy was more efficient uh, in generating more wealth.
2: Um, I'm not sure that it's necessarily more efficient. Um, And certainly over the long run, developmentally, it wasn't sound. And economic historians have shown this, that the North was starting to pull away and the the kinds of of structural uh, changes that were going on in the North were going to, in 20 or 30 years, create an enormous gulf. But right at that moment in 1860, which is when we need to look, if we try to figure out the mindset of those people who were willing to, to leave and then fight this bitter war. Um, From their perspective, things were going very well. They were prosperous, Um, slavery looked stable, and the South was was doing very, very well. And I think um, we need to sort of begin from that position of optimism and confidence rather than from a position of weakness um, and insecurity, which there are many historians that argue that, you know, the slave economy was teetering towards collapse and that fundamentally secession was the last gasp of a kind of dying society. And, I just don't see the evidence for that
0: well the uh or just crude mathematical terms i I can see where if you divide the uh, the wealth of of a county but exclude the the twenty five percent of the enslaved uh people, there will be more left to go around for everybody else and they will be apparently wealthier than others but uh on the same subject the uh, let's see the they're, they're, I find it fascinating. There are many different angles to, yeah. uh, uh, to approach this from. So the class argument that, that uh, the wealthy don't fight as much, or that the, uh, the, the poor bear a disproportionate share of the fighting, doesn't hold up in, in these examples uh, that you've looked at
2: no. in Virginia. No, and I, you know, I mean to be perfectly honest, when I started my my research on this topic, I Went um, anticipating that I would find that I was really interested in questions of loyalty, and I expected to find a very high desertion rate, and that that desertion would be primarily among lower class men, and that it would be it would be um, you know an expression of discontent with the economic consequences and the political you know, and the and the sort of hardship consequences of the war on their families. Um, and I kept looking and I kept looking and I, I didn't find it. And it took a long time. You know, I was, I was diligent and sort of, you know, bullheaded about it. It took a long time for me to recognize that there was a very different story here and that, um, things would work out much better if I just told the story that I found. And, um, and it's, you know, took a while to sort of think about the terms in which this, in which I think the war unfolds in Virginia. Um, but the argument, um, that, you know lower class men sort of give up on the confederacy uh, is not borne out by the evidence in virginia um, desertion rates actually go down over the war um and it's you you can't correlate them to uh the the hard war that the union wages because the war goes progressively more difficult and more demanding on their homes and yet fewer of them desert in 64 than in 62 hmm. well th- you
0: know, another way of approaching this this argument about whether slavery is declining or not economically is, is of course, to just look beyond economics altogether and suggest that these non-slaveholders uh, in Virginia feel a strong attachment, not so much to the slave economy as to the slave society, to their mm-hmm. their place in the hierarchy. If, if that collapses, uh, they lose their their cherished rank as as political equals of, of all other white men.
2: Right, right. And that's right. I mean, this goes back to George Fredrickson and the Heron Vogue, you know, democracy. And I think that, that element is, is clearly very important. Um, and I think, you know, if we look at the, the political history of the antebellum South in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, one of the things you see is that Southern states democratize faster and and broader than many Northern states do by by eliminating restrictions on the franchise, by opening up... Offices by eliminating property holding, restrictions on offices, so that by the time you get, I mean, Virginia is actually a little bit later than other southern states, but by 1851, Virginia has basically universal white manhood suffrage, and and most offices are locally elected uh, sheriffs and tax assessors and those sorts of people. They're not appointed by the governors, so it's a very democratic system, and and those men feel very empowered in that, and, um, you know, the threat to that is quite real, and so they're thinking in terms of rights and liberties. So, so this is where I think McPherson's argument is important. Uh, you know, they are ideology. I mean, they, they don't sort of sit down and write treatises on ideology, but they have clearly internalized the, the, the rights that they possess and their um, concern that the, that the dynamics of the, the union with the Republican Party being a solely Northern Party you know, jeopardize, will jeopardize those rights. Um, and so defending them makes a lot of sense to these guys, as, as you note, for reasons that are, have nothing to do with economics.
0: Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, William Freeling was on the show. We talked about his new book, in which he makes an interesting argument about uh, uh, sort of tiers of, of states within the South. Uh, he, he very much differentiates the Deep South from the Upper South, where he says in 1850 slavery is uh, leaking away. Uh, there, there are too many free Blacks in Maryland, too many escaped slaves going into Pennsylvania. And and, and much of the 1850s he interprets as a, a, a dialogue uh, a contest within the South, mm-hmm. uh, the, the deep South uh, black belt against the, the upper South. Do you see this kind of weakening of the slave structure in the Upper South in Virginia?
2: Um, I don't. I, I mean, Maryland, I, th- I think, a place where you do see that. You know, Maryland and Delaware both have very high rates of, of uh, free blacks living in, in their major towns and a lot of slaves fleeing, um, but they're also marginal states. Um, in Virginia and Kentucky, Tennessee, I don't think you see much weakening. Um, the the economies uh, after the 1853 depression sort of rebound and all of those upper south states are doing very well and I mean numerically you can say that Virginians and, and others in the upper south are selling their slaves off to the south um, but Virginia still has more slaves than any other southern state in 1860 there's half a million people held in bondage in Virginia Um, It's a very dynamic institution. And this is, of course, the thing that Jefferson and the founders couldn't anticipate was, you know, when they are talking about slavery withering away in the 1780s, they don't see the transformation of the economy and of the intellectual justification for slavery that evolved in the 19th century. Um, And so I really – I mean, it's clear that there are important demographic differences between the Lower South and the Upper South. Um, but I don't think – the Upper South, you know, modernizes faster. They invest more in in industrial development, but those things wind up being compatible with slavery, and this is one of those – another one of these elements that people wouldn't have anticipated, that you can put slaves into a factory and have them, um, you know, roll cigars for you or have them owned by mining corporations that are doing mining in the Allegheny Mountains. But you can, and they do. Uh, It turns out to be a a terrifically dynamic institution.
0: Let me uh, change gears here and ask you, as I uh, promised during the the break with the uh, introduction there, uh, what is a a GIS? You mentioned this in in the first segment. uh, Yeah. Um, And and how does it relate to the study of history?
2: Well, um, GIS is a geographic information systems is a digital mapping um, software basically. I mean, there are a variety of purveyors of the software, but the idea is to create digital maps that um, on which you can place basically layers of information. So, if you think about starting with a, a map on your computer screen that has a base base map that is the topography of the United States, um, and then laying on top of that a layer that is waterways, and then laying on top of that roads and then railroads, and then Cities And then starting to layer interesting historical information like rates of slaveholding or um, rates of uh, industrial development or readership by libraries or religious affiliation. And then the software gives you the ability to do statistical comparisons of these things by space. Um, We did some of this, in fact, for the Valley of the Shadow, which if, you know, your readers want to to – they can Google that and then go to the Valley of the Shadow. We have a number of GIS maps up which show the the utility of thinking geographically about historical questions. Um, One of these questions, going back to this topic of comparing the north and the south, is looking at the um, proximity of uh, residences to – um, roadways, right? The argument about modernization is that the north modernizes faster and the south is sort of deliberately um, slow in this respect. And if you look at the map of Franklin County in Pennsylvania, you said see they have all these major roads um, that crisscross the county and everybody can get stuff to market very quickly. Um, and the southern uh, county, Augusta, has fewer major roads and a lot of minor roads which are less well maintained and not as reliable. But when you do the statistical analysis, you find out that um, nearly every household in the southern county lives within a mile of a major road, so it's actually quite easy for them to get goods to market almost the same as the northern county um, We've got maps that chart out how many people live within five miles of a of a school or a church so we can gauge the degree of social cohesion in a place um, and i think i mean g i s is a very interesting tool and a very useful one for historians for giving us first of all, solid information on questions that we didn't have before. For instance, in one of the questions we asked about the, the ownership of property in Augusta was whether or not the wealthy slaveholders had monopolized all the best land, because that's a very old argument going back to Lewis Gray and his history of Southern agriculture at the turn of the century. And in the Upper South, it's not clear that they did. If you look at the distribution of households by income, rich households and poor households are scattered on all of the best and worst parcels of land in the county. It's not as though all of the good land is monopolized by wealthy planters. There are poor and middling families that settle on that and just have smaller plots. Um, so it allows us to ask interesting questions that we weren't really able to before.
0: Have, do you see an application for, for GIS for military
2: studies? Um, There have been, and I know the National Park Service is working, there are some battlefield sites where the the historians are are using GIS to recreate battles. Um, I'm actually working on an atlas right now, um, uh, a a short, concise atlas of the the Civil War and Reconstruction era. And I'm using GIS in this context mostly for display purposes, so that I'm creating base maps and then... um, campaign maps, but other kinds of maps as well to, to demonstrate the movement of armies. Um, and it's a lot, it, it's a very useful and easy tool to work with in terms of wanting to create these things, because once you have a good base map and all of the waterways and all the railroads marked out, you can click those on and off as you want to display information. Um, pretty soon, we're going to be in an era where you can create 3D visualizations of landscape and of movement on landscape that would give readers a real opportunity to visualize battle sequences um, or even campaign marches, for that matter, um, in ways that were not possible, you know, ten even 10 years ago. Um, and I know it's, it's I don't think it's a uniform National Park Service interest, but I know that there are some places where they're developing comprehensive GIS uh, databases of, of their uh, landscape. They're also very useful for archaeology. And so I think a lot of archaeologists have used them on battlefield sites to map out the location of objects and then can build historical data on top of that
0: oh, that, that sounds like an extremely promising development uh, we're going to take another break we'll come back talk more with our guest Aaron Sheehan-Dean when we return on Civil War Talk Radio Talking about some of the cutting edges of Civil War scholarship with our guest Aaron Sheehan Dean. When we return, we'll go to the future with the Civil War Time Machine on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: It's the one-level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Appseo. Appseo's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Appseo, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.appseo.com.
0: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today talking with Aaron Sheehan-Dean about some of the interesting new ways of approaching Civil War history. We've been talking about some of uh, Dr. Dean's demographic Analysis and geographic analysis at the end of our last segment, we were discussing the technology of geographic information systems GIS, with the uh, tantalizing suggestion that one day there will be a, a commonplace application will be three dimensional uh, representations of landforms of landscapes including battlefields and it 's not hard to imagine from that. Uh, well, I, I guess you can already see that in a crude sense in in, the, uh, in games you can buy uh, that recreate Civil War battles where uh, little pixelated men march around <laughs> shooting each other on right. those battlefields. Um, if if the, uh, the sophistication of this technology improves, I can imagine perhaps equally the sophistication of the simulation technology will improve and we could really develop uh, recreations of these battles that would be both informative and uh, uh, perhaps entertaining for people who like to do that
2: yeah uh, it, its make it's the battles turn out the way they were supposed to right
0: that's right if if only I were there if i could uh, <laughs> uh, things would have been so much different um, depending who I was replacing I suppose right I could I could do as well as Franz Siegel i bet <laughs> uh, but but uh, I'm going to get a Email from the Siegel Appreciation Society. Gosh, I'm sure I should not have said anything. Um, well, the uh, the the uh, so-called Civil War time machine that I mentioned in the introduction there was a uh, uh, just a way of asking uh, a question I, I like to ask folks on the show: if if we had such a thing, if it were the future and we could do this, and you could be transported back for an hour into the era of the Civil War uh, where would you want to go? Who do you want to meet
2: uh, well, that's a good question i hadn't I hadn't thought I hadn't thought of that one before we uh, started here uh,
0: ideal then we'll, we'll get get to your your off the top of your head
2: um, well, I think um you know for for a lot of civil war historians there's a there was a i think at least a curiosity with uh, wanting to spend a little bit of time with Lincoln um just to see what he was like um i mean if anything it probably would be at least a good time because he would read some humor and tell a few jokes and um you know he he uh from what everybody says put people at ease so it would be at least an enjoyable time um but it would be uh it would be fascinating to spend some time in both white houses i think and try to get a sense of how um how people saw the wars as it was happening and this has been the big challenge for me is trying to you know an hour is just enough to tease you i would want to spend weeks and weeks to try to get that sense um see whether or not we've got any we've got it figured out correctly at all or whether we're completely off base um and i probably would want to spend um a little bit of time with with uh, the armies because that's where i've spent most of my research time is reading the diaries and letters of regular soldiers Um, you know, often on picket, you know, sitting on the banks of the Rappahannock, um, uh, waiting for something to happen. And uh, the opportunity to talk to those folks as well would be a really useful um, and interesting experience.
0: Your uh, website mentions a manuscript uh, about the experiences of Civil War soldiers. Is this related to this kind of research?
2: Yeah. Well my um and I have a book coming out um on this topic for, for uh on the topic of Virginians and, and soldiers and their families this fall, um called Why Confederates Fought Family and Nation in Civil War Virginia. Uh if I can make a plug.
0: No, that, that's what we're here to do. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned
2: that. Um that title actually I edited another collection that came out last fall with Kentucky uh University uh Press of Kentucky called uh, the View from the Ground, Experiences of Civil War Soldiers, which was a collection of essays by eight uh, scholars, most of them young like myself, many of them with manuscripts coming out, that sort of sampled, it was a state of the field of soldier studies. And um, Chandra Manning, who I think was on your program a while ago, had an essay in it, um, and her book just came out. Um, Jason Kyle Phillips, who's got a book coming out with Georgia in the fall that will be very good, Um and um, Lisa Laskin, who's another Harvard grad, There's, there were a whole bunch of really first-rate people in the in the collection, and um, and that one looked at both Confederates and, and Unionists. It looked at um, or Confederate Confederate and Union soldiers. It looked at questions of home front. It looked at religion. Um, two of the essays focused in particular on religion. Several on politics, and one um, by Kevin Levin on on uh, uh, veterans and memory of the Civil War. Uh, but my own work deals specifically with Virginian so, Virginia soldiers and their families, and uh, and all these questions of motivation that we've been we've been talking about.
0: Uh, um, that book. So this is University of Kentucky Press called The View from the Ground. Yeah. Experience of Civil War Soldiers. So it's something else listeners might want to check out as well. you said, the upcoming book uh, Why Confederates Fought. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Now, when you edited this this book of essays, and, and we've had, uh, Kevin's been on the show, we've had others oh, good. you mentioned on the show, it's, um, trying to to keep our ear to the ground here and see what new is coming along as well, as talk to the uh, established uh, old guys in the field. Uh, you also edited uh, a book for Osprey Publishing, uh, Struggle for a Vast Future. Which is where you and I came into contact. Yeah. I, I did an essay for that. What was that? Like? And Osprey Publishing, is, if our listeners know it, they know it as publishing very thin, highly overpriced mm. books with colorful uniform pictures. So you yeah. can paint your soldiers appropriately, um, of which I have a few, I'll admit. <laughs> um, but this book is nothing like that. Uh, how did that whole thing come about?
2: Yeah, well, the funny thing is I, I didn't really know that, that that's what Osprey did. Um, I was approached um, uh, by the editor at Osprey who was looking for someone to to work on the general editor, to, to function as the general editor for this volume in what was a series that Osprey had started called the Companion Series. They did a book called the D-Day Companion, which had a, uh, 15 or so essays by by prominent um, historians on, on D-Day. And then they did this one on the Civil War, and it was supposed to be part of the Companion series. But as uh, that volume evolved, and it was my first editing experience, and it went just spectacularly. I mean, the, you were a good example of the, the, the standard contributor, you know, prompt and um, great writing and met all the deadlines and, you know, to work with And so it was a sort of fantasy assignment from all the horror stories I'd heard about editing things. Um, that volume just turned out to be so strong in terms of the depth of the of the essays that the editors at Osprey decided to publish it uh, outside the companion series as its own standalone book. Um, and they did an absolutely fantastic job producing it, as you mentioned. They've they've got a lot of experience doing um, a sort of artwork and illustrations, and so they've got full color images and full color maps and. It's a, and this fantastic cover. It's a it's a really stunning book, um, and I just feel lucky that it's, I sort of fell into it and then managed to line up really a stellar group of uh, of historians. Um, I mean, I was certainly following following some distance behind the pack of people, including you know um, you know uh, Robert Crick, the the military historian, and, and Richard Carwardine, the Lincoln scholar, and um, it was a really extraordinary experience for me.
0: Oh, Mark Grimsley, Craig Simon, yeah, uh, Michael Vorenberg, uh, naming three who've been on the show here.
2: Uh. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and they're—I mean, each essay is really just outstanding. So, um, I've gotten some nice feedback. I know some people have assigned it in class, in sort of in place of a, as a kind of overall survey because it addresses the major topics. Right. Um, and it's a—it's a popular history, but it's a pretty diligent one, and the essays are all interpretive and um and there's you know footnotes and there's recommended readings and so it gives people a real hook into almost anything they could be interested in with regard to the war
0: well you know one of my uh, uh interests here in teaching uh interest is in uh, public history and this volume is an example to me of the the kind of crossover that that you just rarely see between academic history and and popular history where you've got a book that, as you say, has a really striking cover, filled with great illustrations that it could be mistaken for a coffee table book. Right, right. Uh, Using a term to describe, something, it's just beautiful to look at, but but vapid in the text. Um, This isn't that. It it really is spectacularly produced. But the essays, um, uh, I'm trying not to uh, brag on my own essay uh, as any different from the others, but all the essays are... Are well well done and substantive. Yeah, uh, uh, people in the field can learn something from them, and uh, and yet it's aimed at a popular audience. The Civil War has that audience, of people mm-hmm. who want to spend time with that. And and uh, yeah, I, th- I think you did an outstanding job with that book. Thank really you. I mean, that's it.
2: one of the exciting things about teaching the Civil War is that there are a lot of people that want to know about it and want to talk about it. And you know, I think this will only increase as we get closer to the sesquicentennial anniversary of the war. I think that popular audience is probably going to mushroom. Well, um, not, and so historians thing. need to be professional historians, and academics as well as those who are not affiliated with academic institutions, You know, need to think seriously about how to engage everybody beyond just their classroom and Absolutely. a handful of people that read our books, usually.
0: Now, uh, is it possible, though, that, that the audience... Is is in decline for this kind of thing? I'd, I'd I'd like to be optimistic and say you're right that it's it will go up with the uh, the next anniversary date, but it does go up and down in cycles. Up during mm-hmm. the the centennial, uh, down in the
2: 1970s, up with Ken Burns in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, uh, is it going back down again now? Do you suppose? Um, I I don't know. I mean, it, it it doesn't appear to from my scanning the bookshelves at you know my local Barnes and Noble and Borders. I know that you know the university presses have have been, uh, you know, they've been facing hard times and they've got dwindling readerships. Though I think among the major civil war, civil war still still is a field where presses can hope to sell more than the requisite, you know, three or four hundred books. And right. UNC and LSU and and some of the major presses that do southern. Uh, work, as well as places like Harvard and Oxford, uh, continue to publish. You know, I mean, they sell a lot of copies of their Civil War titles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I don't know. I think, um, I mean, my my hope is that, uh, you know, the, the historians find ways to make the Civil War relevant and important to the questions that we face today, and in that sense it will hopefully never go out of style. It continues to be useful for us to ponder as we, Think about the challenges that that we face you know in the years to come
0: well it does the 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 issues certainly behind the war have not not been resolved, many of them have not unless they continue on um, so you teach civil war classes, I assume yes and uh, this is circling around to where we started, we were talking about our common roots in Michigan uh, do you find it different teaching students in Florida uh after growing up in Michigan.
2: Um yeah, I have very little memory of just studying the Civil War as I grew up in Michigan. Um I mean my dad uh, had some we had some sort of family history but didn't spend a lot of time on that and 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 my high school history was unfortunately not terrifically rigorous, but um so I have some sort of vague memories of it. Uh but it also is a little bit different, having having been in Virginia for a long time, where uh, almost everybody takes the Civil War very seriously and knows it very well. Um, I would say Floridians are probably more engaged than Michiganders, but not as engaged as Virginians. Um, it certainly has greater relevance when I talk about occupation. Jacksonville was occupied several times by Union troops during the course of the war. And so it means something to go with students on a field trip and, and go to Fort Clinch, which is a... a uh, park in um, Fernandina on Amelia Island, about about 30 miles north of us, where the Union um, Army was for a good part of the war, and be there with them and have them understand that this is the place that it happened. And, you know, there was an occupation. We're, we're reading about our occupation um, of different countries today and talking about questions of reconstruction every day in the news. And so um, I think for Southern students it's it's uh, it's a little bit more resonant and I think it's a little bit easier to engage with them, uh, to pose questions that uh, the U.S. faces in reconstructing Iraq, for instance, and then turn those around around and talk about the reconstruction of Florida and 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 be able to pull out documents that have a sort of eerie parallel to some of today's problems.
0: Hmm. It, it, I, I would certainly agree it's easier to engage students in, in the South than in the Midwest on, on these topics. Uh, but do you get the students who are beyond engagement in the sense that they, who are so fully engaged, uh, I guess I mean to say, that uh, that they have already formed their conclusions?
2: Um, I have not yet. Um, and I know that at some point, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there have been one or two of those, um, though I don't get the sort that sort of, you know, begin challenging you the first day. Um, I mean, my colleague, Dan Schaefer, who started out teaching the Civil War here, when he began teaching 30 years ago, has a story about his first day in which he was, you know, confronted that that moment, him him, fresh from Minnesota teaching and uh-huh. um, a student who had been waiting to teach, take this class, and she stood up and hurled down her book and said there was no way after four years of waiting that she was going to take this class with a you know, expletive deleted Yankee and then stormed out. Um, and I think that partly, it, you know, things in Jacksonville have changed a lot in the last 30 years, um, and that our student body, because we're an urban institution that, that serves um, – uh, a non traditional age student, so our student body uh the average age is twenty three We get a lot of former military and military spouses uh we've got two naval bases here in town, and so people are respectful and they are considerate and thoughtful um, and i haven't gotten a lot of the sort of you know die hard folks that that know they're right um and that's been nice i you know I get students that know something but that generally just want to learn and are willing to listen and and argue and and you know read and and do all of that and that's that's what that's the most you can hope and expect is that you know I'm not trying to convert anyone to my way of thinking but to get them to think basically and and learn how to use history in that way.
0: Well, that's certainly the ideal when when you can engage and, and get conflicting views but but expressed civilly and and get some kind of synthesis of the multiple perspectives people bring to the classroom. Um, But uh, I I imagine at some point you'll get those students uh, who don't always talk back. suddenly they just cross their arms (laughs) and put down the pencil, and they're not taking any more notes because they they, they, they know you're wrong and they're right. And uh, and that's all they have to say. Well, Aaron, I want to thank you for being on the show today. We're out of time, unfortunately, already, but it has been a real pleasure talking with
2: you. It was great to talk with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: And uh, listeners... When it comes out, get a copy of Why Confederates Fought by Aaron Sheehan Dean in the fall of 2007. And until then, and past then, keep listening to Civil War Talk Radio.